Well, as I thought about passages to look at, some themes came to mind, and I thought perhaps we could look at unity and the sweet fellowship that we've shared over the years. Uh, or perhaps we could look at prayer, uh, to think about our great need for Christ every day and to pour out uh, and cast ourselves upon him. We could talk about evangelism and discipleship, the way in which the kingdom grows. And this room is already testimony of God's work in this place. So I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And uh, by God's grace, I suppose we'll talk about all of those other topics too, as the cross leads us there. So let's go there, to the hinge point of our faith, to the cross. So first I'm going to read Psalm 22, which is going to be our main text. And then I'm going to read Matthew 27, verses 45 through 50, and I think you will see why. So Psalm 22, and this is God's word. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let's go now to Matthew <clears throat> Matthew 27, beginning verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's come to God in prayer. O oh, Father, Open our eyes to Christ. Unfold the mystery of salvation that was long hidden, but now revealed for all to see. A Savior, but a suffering one, stricken for us. And so we pray, take us to Christ this afternoon. By the power of your Spirit, we pray. And in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, as we saw... Jesus quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, as he hung on the cross, as he was about to die. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this sermon, in truth, it comes from one of Pastor Eric's comments that he made maybe a decade ago. One of those nuggets that he just throws out there and it rolls around in your mind and just kind of stops you in your tracks. When Jesus was on the cross... Had God truly forsaken his son, Jesus? Many a preacher, many a commentator says that God turned his face away and that the divine fellowship between father and son was broken in that hour. But that would be to divide the divine essence. That the one true God at that moment had two parts. And if one God became two, then he changed, he altered in his being. That the great I am, who always, always being, now became. And God doesn't do that, beloved. He doesn't become or change or shift in his shadow. He is forever and ever. Yes, indeed, Jesus in his human nature, he was born, he grew, he even died. But the nature of God, the eternal fellowship of the triune persons never fractured. And as a commercial, if you want to understand more about all that, sign up for the CE on Confessions and Creeds. But what do we make of Jesus' quotation here then? And Eric said the comment was that Jesus was not saying that he was forsaken. 
Because you have to understand how the Jews used the Psalms. They memorized them. They sang them. The Psalter was their hymn book. And so they sang them and they memorized them in Hebrew school. They were, if you will, the top 150 hits on the charts for 500 years. And so when the Jews cited the Psalms, a line from it here and there, they might quote that line, but they would mentally fill in the rest of the psalm as well. I could sing, maybe I shouldn't sing, when peace like a river, and you would automatically in your mind start to sing it yourself all the way up to, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so the same as Jesus quoted, you have to read all of Psalm 22 to understand what he was saying. It is a psalm of lament and trust. Jesus poured out his heart to God, like David before him, in a confession of that trust and praise. And so we're going to explore Psalm 22 in David's life and then in Christ's cross. As I said, Psalm 22, it's a lament psalm. These typically have common parts. There is a lament, a confession of trust, and they often conclude with a vow of praise. And those are going to be our outline today, if you're taking notes. David's lament, or his complaint, his confession of trust, and then his praise. So looking first at David's suffering. His lament begins in verse 1. The Lord, excuse me, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? In his situation, he feels abandoned. God is no longer with him, it seems, and so he has found himself in trouble. He's being attacked on all sides, and he's losing the battle. He may escape from one dangerous situation and find himself straight into another sticky spot. You remember how David was the man after God's own heart, anointed with oil and with the Holy Spirit, anointed to be the king of Israel. And and so given God's close presence before, his seeming absence now is keenly felt. David feels abandoned. We don't know exactly when this was in David's life. Could it have been when he was fleeing from Saul? being hunted in the mountains, being betrayed by by those around him, or even being chased out of Jerusalem at the threat of death by his very own son, crossing the river in the night. And we don't know exactly what situation prompted David to write these words. And, And yet, because of that, it's actually all the more timeless. It applies all the more to our situations and our troubles because of its vivid poetic imagery, rather than the specific details that he might have recorded. Look at his situation. His enemies are hounding him, attacking his very life. He's unjustly attacked. These enemies consider David to be a worm, something insignificant. Perhaps you passed worms out in the rain on your way here. You don't care about stepping on a worm. And so David feels their scorn. He feels despised by them. And they hurl their insults at him. As it says here, they make mouths at me. And the sense of that is they're, they're throwing their insults, pelting him as if with rotten tomatoes. And they're shaking their heads and they're mocking him. And so specifically, they mock David 
for trusting in God. That's got a sting. David's out here trying to do the right thing, trying to obey God, and he finds himself in this mess, and they are taunting him with that faith, saying in verse 8, Oh, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let God rescue him, for God supposedly delights in him. Run like a scaredy cat to your God. Now he's not with you. He does not care about you. We're already out here. We're taking your stuff, your garments from you, divvying them up for ourselves. You're out here on your own. We will destroy you, they were saying. And look at their animal rage before him. See how these enemies come at him with rabid hatred. David calls them first rushing bulls. Not a placid cow, but picture a thundering herd of bulls stampeding towards you coming at you to gore you with their horns, to toss you up into the air and crush you under their hooves. He calls them a ravening, roaring lion, ready to devour him. And they're also like rabid dogs. Don't picture your cute Labrador who plays with you and mouths you. No, these are, these are mangy street dogs prowling around in the streets, scavenging in their feral packs, and they come and they surround you. They nip and bite and tear at you. And so you're fighting them off with your limbs. And so they attack. They bite your hands and feet and pierce the skin, leaving bloody and infected wounds. All of this blind animal rage directed at David for what reason? He doesn't know. And he can't take it anymore. They're hounding him wherever he goes. And he can find no safety anywhere. And so he's been driven he writes, to a point of despair, real depression. In verses 14 to 15, he, he complains he's got no strength to keep on going. Everything feels weak, like melted wax just flowing away. His spirit running out of him like, like water poured out on the desert ground and immediately dries up. He himself is dried up, useless, like broken pieces of pottery so dry that he, he thirsts, his tongue sticking to his mouth, and he's become so emaciated that he can count all of the bones in his ribcage, whether that was through starvation or, or depression when you just don't feel like eating anymore. So his heart is just not in anything anymore. There's no more, uh, let's go, we got this. He's all out of those. And at this point, he's just lying in the dust, waiting for death to come to him. Perhaps this is you. Like David, lying in the dust, getting to the end of your rope. And as I look back, I know that there were many joys to celebrate in 2023. Weddings and babies and uh, conversions and baptisms. Praise God for those many blessings. But it was also a hard year for, for many of us here at church. So many loved ones passed away last year. Heard about so many surgeries and diagnoses. Some of you lost your jobs. It's not easy, I know, to land a new one these days. Uh, some of us went through in, immense health struggles, disappointments in ministry or heartache and family planning. Church, 
we went through some stuff together last year. And in those struggles, where do we turn? Where do you go with your pray or with your pain? So we need to look now at David's trust because David ran to God. Look back at verse 2. He's crying out, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And there's confusion there. He's, he, he hasn't received yet his answer from God. But even in his lament, he's bringing his pain to God. He's not embittered and running away from God, turning from Him. No, he's running to God. He, again, he doesn't understand, and so he's groaning, roaring in his agony, but he's roaring to God. And you know, I think one of the surprises of parenting that, that uh, came to me is when you have to see your kids go through a bit of pain uh, for their good, uh, one thing that scarred me is child vaccinations, pediatric injections. Uh, you bring your little one to the nurse, and uh, your girl's looking up at you with those sweet, trusting eyes, because, I mean, really, up to this point in their life, all you've done is taken care of their every desire, right? And then you've got to lay her down, and you hold her down, and then the nurse sticks her with a needle. And immediately, those cries come up, but those eyes... They look up at you, so betrayed. <laughs> like, you, out of all people, could do this to me. And you can't tell a six-year-old, or a six-month-old, rather, you can't tell that little girl that she needs these shots to be healthy, to be strong, and to be safe. All you can do is hug her through those cries. And yet, somehow, she still trusts you. And so, in your hurt, in your hurt, do you call out to your father day and night without ceasing, without giving hope, without giving up hope of receiving an answer from him? That part is not easy. So what leads you there? David might take you somewhere you didn't expect. Verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. God's holiness is a comfort to David. We don't normally think of his attributes when we're in pain of systematic theology, but this is absolutely right. His holiness is God's godness, if you will. All of his perfections are wrapped up into that word. His perfect love in his holiness. His perfect righteousness and justice in His holiness. Everything that God does is right because He is God, because He is holy. He is the definition and standard of everything that we understand and see. You, you understand, He is God and we are not. He is the Creator and we are the created things. And so as the created things, we derive our every understanding, our tell us our purpose from what is right in God's character. And so, in our pain, right now, in David's pain, even as he is unjustly attacked, God is holy. What David is going through right now, as he's writing, 
it's still somehow right. No, it's not comfortable. There are uncomfortable things, even painful things that are still good, like pediatric injections that are right in God's sight. Right now, in your pain, God is holy. And he's also enthroned. Enthroned on high, he is the king of kings, ruling from his throne, from his sanctuary in heaven, that house of praises. Nothing has surprised or pulled God down from his throne. He's in control, beloved, even if everything seems out of control in your life. He controls how fast the earth, the earth is spinning on its axis. Which means, beloved, that every day is in his hands. He is also controlling how that earth is orbiting the sun. Which means he, he knows and controls every one of our years, beloved. Every element of our lives in his, are in his hands. And those mighty hands have authority over everything great and small. These enemies barking against David, they haven't overcome God's godness and his authority. Their actions have limits that are set by God and they cannot transgress them. This gives David hope because his God is immovable, unchangeable. God's character and nature never change. He is always holy. He is always loving and just. Do you believe that God is more powerful than your troubles? That God's love is, is actually more real and true than our pain? Sometimes we think that we need to add something to God in order to make Him into a loving God. But no, right now, right now in our pain, in our confusion, He is holy. Right now, He is enthroned. God is still God of the universe, which includes our little corner of the cosmos. You understand? This is how David takes comfort in God's holy character. But he goes on. He goes to look at God's past works. He reminds himself not only that God is God, but that he has saved in the past. Verse 4 through 5. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. There are so many things in Scripture that remind us of the mighty works of God. As we see how God brought them through the desert and fed two million people wandering around. God rescued Joseph from the dungeon in Egypt, falsely accused and mistreated himself, and yet Joseph rose to be second in the nation. And through that, God saved his entire family, the entire nation of Israel, all the patriarchs, the fathers, literally, God, or David remembered that God was faithful in the past. He's not in the habit of leaving his people out to dry. And so David reflected on those past victories. And so brothers and sisters, soak yourselves in the mighty works of God and in his mighty word. Be in awe. Daily, take the time to daily be in awe of God's power his faithfulness, his loving kindness and mercy to us, especially, 
especially when his people were unfaithful to him. And David knows God's work, powerful work in his own personal life. In 9 and 10, verse 9 and 10, he claims that God was with him from his very birth. You took me from the womb, trusting you even at my mother's side. Four times, essentially, he's saying, you have been my God ever since you gave me life in the first place. As a young boy, a young man, he told Saul, God rescued me from bears and lions when I was keeping the sheep, and he will rescue me again from Goliath's sword. Perhaps he was thinking of Psalm 23 as, as God led David like a shepherd, providing for every one of his needs. He knew what sheep need. He knew how silly sheep can be and how much guidance they need. And God was there for him, even providing the safety to set a feast in the presence of his enemies. And so you too, you too I'm sure have had blessings from God in your past. Every one of those is a promise that God has kept to you. And that God, beloved, is the same God today as he was then. And so then, David runs to God. David's prayer to God is to deliver him. You can see it coming out in, in verse 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now you see here, he's repeating five times in different words the same thing. A prayer for deliverance. Don't be far off. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul. My precious life, deliver that. Save me from the mouth of the lion. All these things are upon him. And so he says, be by my side. Drive them off as you are near to me. Because your nearness is the blessed life. And your absence, oh, it has, it has almost put me in the grave. So be by me. The sword, the dogs, the lions, the ox, it's, it's so overwhelming to me. And so David's praying over and over and over for his help. He's keeping it up day and night. Even as he hasn't heard yet from him, he continues his prayer. And then, in the midst of his praying, in the middle of his poetic line and parallelism, something changes in him. The last line breaks the pattern. Because it was petition and petition and petition and petition and petition and then a statement. He says in verse 21, you have rescued me. It's done. It's as good as done. I know it. His heart as he was pouring himself, as he was casting himself upon God, reflecting on who he is and who he has been to him in the past, his heart found once more that confidence in God. As the Spirit assured him, he moves from his pain to a place of praise. No more in this psalm. From here on out, he pours out praise and confidence in his God. And so we look at David's praise. 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you of offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. 
all you offspring of Israel. He promises to praise God, and he exhorts others to do the same. And it's interesting that the context here, his vow is the congregation, the house of worship. Because a vow offering would be an animal sacrifice upon the altar in the tabernacle with a bread offering to go with it. And one commentator is suggesting this must have been communal. The animal slaughtered, the fat portion was first given to God and offered on the altar and burnt. And then the worshippers shared, if you look at Leviticus 7, the worshippers shared the offering with the priests and most likely those who were gathered around. And so perhaps as the high priest Basil was roasting the bull, David was standing there by the altar and declaring his vow offering to anybody who would listen. He was telling everyone how God had heard his prayers, how he rescued him from these enemies, and then they would joyfully partake in the meal together. None of it was to be left over. They needed to eat all of it together, feasting in God's goodness. David's picturing this scene. As he's praying, he's picturing this confidence that his enemies are not going to ultimately succeed against him. He won't be dead tomorrow, but soon he will be standing and preaching in the congregation. Beloved, is this not a picture of our communal congregational worship? Oh, we love that here at Pillar. We understand that we're not just speaking privately here to God in our singing, but to one another, exhorting each other to believe, to hold on to the beautiful things that we are singing together. And so this praise, this praise would be lifting up others who also fear God. It says that the poor and the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. As they're coming to the temple to worship, David would fill their stomachs and their ears with God's goodness. And in verse 26, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And this praise, as he reflects on it, this praise will reach the world. All kinds will come to worship God. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the earth, of the nation, shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. The prosperous of the earth, those bowed down in the dust, all of them coming before God. In other words, rich and poor, without distinction, all of them accepted before the Lord. People from every end of earth will turn to God. All the families and the tribes and the nations, oh, they will worship God because of the praise, because of the deliverance brought to David. God, as king over the nations, will will give them this hope and bring them in. And we see even that this, this faithfulness will extend to the generations. It says, posterity shall serve him. Told of the Lord to the coming generation, those coming and proclaiming his righteousness to a people yet unborn. As the faithful pass on, God's words 
to them, to their children, and to the generations that come, they too, by God's graciousness, will come before God for salvation. What a promise for our evangelism. As you think about stewarding your workplaces and the relationships that you have to bring them the gospel. For our missions, as we think about the darkness and the hopelessness that is out in the world to come and to find the light of Christ. For our families, as we labor over them day in and day out. What we are doing in one sense is praising God, even in our pain, for what He has done in our lives. We tell others about the God who rescued us. He saved David. And we don't know exactly what his troubles was, nor exactly how his deliverance happened, but we know God answered that prayer. And he did not leave David in the dust, but set him back on his feet to love and praise God more. And so David praised God for this loving kindness. We looked at David's suffering, at David's trust, and David's praise. And in the time remaining, I want to look at Christ, his, his suffering, his trust, and ultimately his praise. As I said at the outset, Jesus didn't just use verse 1 to say that God had forsaken him. No, Jesus claimed every verse and word of Psalm 22 for himself. Why do I say that? Not just because of what we know about Jewish psalmody practices. No, because Jesus claimed it for himself. Because the apostles and in the book of Hebrews, they all say that. They saw how all of it was Christ-shaped. If you were paying attention in the series in Hebrews, it says in chapter 2, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that is us, so Jesus and us, all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's verse 22 from our passage. And at first it doesn't seem connected to Jesus or the cross, right? But this verse does talk about Jesus as our older brother in the family of God. The author knew that Jesus claimed all of Psalm 22, including verse 22, about revealing the Father to his brothers. Us, in other words. Jesus claimed and fulfilled all of it, all of Psalm 22, in the truest way more fully than David. Jesus suffered, but he had perfect trust in his God. And he did it all to praise God the Father because God will deliver far more than we could imagine. So as we walk through Matthew, as we look through the crucifixion account, we see how Psalm 22 rings throughout it. Jesus' enemies, just like David, Jesus had enemies, and they were just as intent to put him to death. They were blindly raging against him, lying in ambush, pouncing when they could. Jesus mercifully gave them chances to repent, to point out how they were so fixated on denying him. And yet, even in spite of those warnings, they worked all the more to kill him, shouting, crucify, crucify. And those soldiers, they mocked him. They called him the king of the Jews without realizing that he is the king of kings, surrounding him, beating him. And then they led him out to the place 
with a skull where they, they stripped off his garments and cast lots for them. It says that the bystanders, those who passed by, wagged their heads. They hurled their insults at him. He saved others, or let him save himself. I bet those priests and those scribes stared and gloated at finally getting rid of, of that Jesus, and they even quoted that line at him. Verse 43, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They knew the verse, Psalm 22. They knew it. You see, they connected Jesus' claim to be the beloved Son with whom God was well pleased. And so they thought, well, no, God's not going to delight in this blasphemer. He won't save him. They knew Psalm 22, and they unknowingly fulfilled it. Having no idea that God was actually going to deliver Jesus from death by going through death. And so Jesus was crucified. He was pierced for our iniquities. His hands were stretched out along a beam of wood and seven-inch spikes nailed them there. Another spike piercing his feet and holding them to the cross. And then he was lifted up. As it was written, the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, Zechariah. And so he hung there, our Savior, straining, gasping, slowly dying for hours, thirsting, weakened from the beating and flogging, all of his strength slowly drying up as he suffocated to death. His bones weren't broken like the other prisoners because he had already given up his life. But John 19, they pierced his side and water and blood poured out. We see the suffering, the pain of Christ. And so it was fitting. It was right for him to voice his pain and cry out to God. But it was not a cry of dereliction or of accusation against God. Because in his pain, Jesus continued to trust God's plan for deliverance. In a deeper way than David ever could, Jesus trusted his Father. But why? Why did the Son of God do this? He did this for God and for you. Because Jesus, from his conception in the womb by the Spirit, from his first breath in this life to his last one, he lived in full trust of God. And he did it perfectly because he is holy. In his divine nature, in his trusting obedience, he was holy. The Spirit sustained him so that the perfect divine fellowship was never broken. Even in that dark hour, even as the Father crushed the Son, the fellowship was not broken. And so Christ trusted in God's deliverance. And it was because of this trust that he prayed fervently. You remember him? Bowed in the garden, humbly submitting to the Father's will. And it says that God heard that prayer. Hebrews 5.7 In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because 
of his reverence. God heard Jesus, but those cries, beloved, they were not answered when or as we would have expected. Because Jesus prayed on Good Friday, but God answered on Sunday. Jesus prayed for deliverance from death, but for him it came through death. And then, and then three days later, rising in resurrection glory. That was his deliverance. We need to remember that in our prayers, when we are waiting on God, yes, God could save us from every pain, but that might not be his answer for you. Not now. Because God's timing and ways are right and holy. And Jesus did all of this, not just for God the Father, but also for you, to save sinners such as us. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross, the suffering, the human pain, the spiritual pain of bearing all of our sins and all of the punishment that we deserve. We cannot imagine how horrified Jesus must have been at, at touching at handling, at assuming our sin. Because sin is absolutely grotesque to the Holy One. You could picture wearing a white suit or a white dress and then absolutely drench it in mud from the foulest sewer you can find. And that does not even begin to describe how filthy our sins are to the Holy Son. Yet, yet, he took them from us, stripping our filthy garments off of us, cleansing us, placing his robe of righteousness and holiness upon us. And then he went to the cross and he died. The king of heaven died so that he could pay for every last sin that you committed or will ever do. May your hearts live forever. Seek God and ask for His deliverance from your sins because the greatest evil set against you are those sins that you cannot get rid of yourself no matter how you try. But Jesus can. This psalm, the whole Bible, drifts with Jesus' work to save sinners such as us, such as you, if you will only believe and put your whole trust in Him. Would you come? Would you flee to him in your pain? And, and he will save you. He has done this. Brothers and sisters, your exhortation, exhortation from Psalm 22 is to praise God for this deliverance. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him in your prosperity but also in your trials, because God has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity, Ecclesiastes 7.14. God does not change, no matter what day you find yourself in. And so we, beloved, we will praise Him still. Praise and pray day and night and cling to Him all the more. Your worship then will lead others to the Savior. Perhaps our very own posterity as we disciple them. The prosperity, or the prosperous and the poor. Sinners from east and from west coming to the house of God.
for his salvation. For God will answer. He will answer in the day of his salvation. The good news is that he has done it, and we long to see it. Let's come to him in prayer. Father, we confess our, our faulty hearts, unworthy hearts. We're so fail, frail and flimsy in our faith. Sometimes the lightest things can send us into tailspin. And sometimes we feel the weight, the, the heaviest things crushing us. But you are God. You are holy and enthroned on high. And so may we trust in you. May we trust you with our pain and with our deliverance. May we trust you with our sins and come once more to the fountain of grace and praise you. Lift us up, O oh God. And I pray for those who are seeking you, who see your blessings but have not themselves tasted them, who are burdened with a lifetime of sins that they cannot lift. Father God, would you save them? Would you open their hearts to faith in Christ, your beloved Son? Deliver them. Deliver them and we will go on praying this until you are pleased to answer. Bring them into this house of faith for us to rejoice together forever and that you would be praised and honored and glorified throughout all the ages. This is what we pray for and what we long for and what we pray you would put us into the mission field for. We pray this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.